Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. I am so pleased to welcome Nathan Thrall to the show. He's the former director of the Arab-Israeli Project at the International Crisis Group and the author of The Only Language They Understand, Forcing Compromise in Israel and Palestine. You may have read his stuff in the New York Times Magazine, The Guardian, The London Review of Books, The New York Review of Books. He's taught at Bard College and lives in Jerusalem, and his new book is A Day in the Life of Abed Salama, The Anatomy of a Jerusalem Tragedy. This is a book that uh, is unlike anything you'll read this year. In it, he tells the story of a bus accident where six little Palestinian kindergartners and a teacher were burned to death. One of the children tragically killed was a five-year-old boy named Milad, and the story follows his father, Abed Salama, as he desperately searches for his son following the accident. It's a book about the bureaucracy and the indignities a father must, as a Palestinian, endure in the hours and days after the accident, including how it was impossible to travel to the hospital where his son might be lying. And through the story of these children and their loss and their parents and all the emergency responders and the civilians who jumped into action, Mr. Thrall paints a painful and honest picture of what life is like under Israeli authority for both Jewish citizens and Palestinians who are living under occupation. It comes from his experience living in Gaza and in Jerusalem as an American Jew. And because this book is about Palestinians under occupation, many of Nathan Thrall's book events have been canceled since the horrific October 7th attacks on Israel. And the controversy around the book's existence is directly connected to the system it so powerfully explains. It's a great pleasure to welcome Nathan Thrall to SiriusXM. Hello. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And I'm sure you've never had a book tour like this before. It feels like the world generally only pays attention to Israel and Palestine when there's some incredible catastrophe of violence, something on this scale. And you've often pointed out that when those things happen, everybody says we have to end this violence and return to a situation of calm. Your book is really about how that calm doesn't really exist. And it's very moving to me that you chose to tell the story of something that happens all over the world, a car accident. But to extrapolate this tragedy out and show what it means 
for that accident to have taken place with this particular set of victims. You've opened up the entire story of Israel and Palestine. How did you, sir, first come across Abed Salama, and and why did you want to tell his story? Thank you. That's um, very kind of you and very well put. You know, the the actual choice of this story um, was not an obvious one for a journalist. You know, the, the more obvious choice would be a war in Gaza or something more dramatic. And my goal really with this book was to choose something that does, as you say, happen all over the world to show us what it actually is for uh, Israeli Jews and Palestinians living under this system at a time when there's not a war, to show what is the day in in day out reality that does continually produce these wars and these spikes in violence. I came across Abed um, because, you know, I live in the in the same city. Uh, I live in Jerusalem, very close actually to where uh, uh, Abed lives in the town of Anatta, which is partially within uh, the municipal boundary of Jerusalem. It was partially annexed by Israel in 1967. And Abed lives on the other side of a 26-foot-tall concrete wall that surrounds his community uh, of Anatta and um, the Shuafat refugee camp. And that community is surrounded on three sides by this 26-foot-tall concrete wall and on a fourth side by another kind of wall, uh, which runs through Route 4370, which is famously known as the Apartheid Road because Mm -hmm. it segregates Israeli and Palestinian traffic. And you have about 130,000 people living in a very dense urban ghetto surrounded on walls by all on all sides. Half of it is officially considered the unannexed part of the West Bank. Half of this walled ghetto is considered municipal Jerusalem. But really, all of it looks the same. Uh, you can't tell which part Israel considers officially within its sovereign boundaries and which part uh, is not. And I would pass by this uh, walled enclave you know, on a daily uh, or at least weekly basis and um, I hardly paid it any mind. I would yeah. I would drive by it and I wouldn't pay really any attention to the people living in this community. And uh, after this tragic bus accident involving this group of kindergartners, I couldn't stop thinking about the uh, parents and children uh, and teachers who lived on the other side of that wall. And I started to seek out um all people who were connected in any way to this incident. And uh, it turned out that a close family friend told me that she was related distantly to one of the parents, and that turned out to be Abed. So she connected me to a relative who connected me to Abed. And I found myself at his home, and he welcomed me and uh, really opened his, his heart, his entire life to me. Um, in an extraordinary uh, way that involved a great deal of trust. And I spent, you know, basically the better part of the last four years of my life having very intimate conversations with Abed. And through his, you know, it's called A Day in the Life of Abed Salama, but it's really his life story. It's also the yeah. life story of some of the other characters. And and through his story, I, I saw that I could really tell the entire story of Israel-Palestine. And it really wasn't hard to win his trust, was it? Despite the fact that you're American and Jewish, he was he was very, very ready to speak with you. 
he was and and you know it wasn't just abed um there was a cloud of silence that hung over the accident um for many of the parents who were involved people didn't want to upset them by mentioning the their uh, child who they had lost and so they just wouldn't bring it up in front of them even members of the nuclear family wouldn't talk about it in front of other members of the nuclear family and so when i showed up at abid's home and some of the uh, homes of other parents um i found that actually everything just came pouring out um they were longing to talk about this no one would talk about it in front of them and um and so yeah in in the case of abed and some of the other uh, parents there really was um no barrier there was um an, an immediate um uh, sharing of, of the most intimate details of their lives and you know that was so important for this book because one of its themes is the degree to which this system reaches into the most intimate details of their lives and that's yes. part of what i was trying to show you know at one point in abed's life he is has a higher paying job in jerusalem and he's at risk of losing it like many others who have his same kind of west bank green id um and in order to keep his id he and other people started to seek out um as marriage partners people who had uh, blue uh, IDs that allowed them to enter Jerusalem that he could then acquire through marriage and keep his job. And that's just one of dozens of examples of, you know, the degree to which their enti their entire lives are really dictated uh, by this system of control. And, you know, Abed, he, he actually winds up marrying someone based on the color of her ID. Yeah. You write so powerfully about the the way of life in this ghetto and, and how it is walled off on three sides by a 26 foot high wall. People have to burn their trash in the middle of the street. There's there's no ATMs. Right. And and when emergency services needs to come into an area, they often can't get in unless they have a police escort. I mean, it's it's a level yeah. of control that that people in the West can't really imagine. You briefly mentioned the blue IDs and the green IDs, and I'd really like you to unpack that a bit for American listeners. Can you, can you explain what it means to say that an enclave is half annexed and half unannexed? Yes. So um, in 1967, Israel decided to annex uh, East Jerusalem, which was then much smaller than it is today, as well as the lands of over two dozen surrounding villages stretching from the borders of Ramallah to the outskirts of, of Bethlehem. And uh, the entire area was unilaterally declared by Israel to now be part of the sovereign state of Israel, to be within the, muni the expanded boundaries of the municipality of Jerusalem. And what Israel uh, didn't count on when it did this annexation was that the Palestinian population there was going to continue to grow at its natural growth rate, which was higher than the Jewish growth rate. And uh, much later, Israel started to institute a set of policies to essentially undo part of that annexation by limiting the uh, entry of Palestinians within their own city, the city they were born and raised in, by uh, enacting a complex permit system and then later a uh, wall that actually lopped off as many Palestinians as they possibly could while yep. relinquishing 
the smallest portion of land. And so the wall wound up surrounding this entire area of Anatta, which was partially annexed and partially unannexed. And so inside this walled enclave, you have families where some members have a blue Jerusalem ID because they reside in the part that Israel had formally annexed in 1967, and others who have a green West Bank ID um, that doesn't allow them to enter Jerusalem. They need to apply for a set of permits in order to do any kind of business in Jerusalem, to go to their hospital that they've gone to their whole lives. And so... um, That is the situation of all of these parents and children. And on the day of this tragic accident, it had really uh, huge consequences for everyone involved. And so because this area on the other side of the wall is one of total uh, neglect, um, Israel ignores these people deliberately, hundreds of thousands of people on the other side of this wall, and it doesn't allow the um, Palestinian Authority, the kind of uh, autonomy uh, government of the Palestinians that's allowed limited self-rule in pockets of the West Bank, it doesn't allow them into these areas. Right. And so what happened on the morning of the crash was that just ordinary bystanders were left to deal with this burning bus filled with kindergartners. And those bystanders themselves, some of them had green IDs, which didn't allow them to enter Jerusalem. They're just normal West Bank green IDs. Others had blue IDs that did allow them to enter Jerusalem. And so if you were at the scene of the crash and you just had a you know, small four-seater, uh, somebody would hand you a soot-covered kindergartner that you would throw into the back seat of your car. And if you had a blue ID, you would go to the superior Jerusalem hospitals, which were very close by. Uh, and if you had a green ID, you would not be able to do that. So you went to the hospital in Ramallah, or some even went as far as Nablus. And when the parents themselves showed up at the scene of the crash, um, like Abed, all of the children were gone and all of those children had been taken by ordinary bystanders because yeah. it was more than a half hour before the first Israeli fire truck came. And Abid, when he arrives at the scene of this crash, he's asking this crowd of people, you know, where are the children? And he is told what sound like a bunch of rumors, but many of which were true. They're at this hospital in East Jerusalem, which he can't go to because he has a green ID. They're at this hospital in West Jerusalem, which he can't go to because he has a green ID. They're at the um, military base, the Israeli military base, just a minute up the road. Also, he can't enter. They're at the Ramallah hospital. And so he went to the place that seemed most plausible, which was the, the Ramallah hospital that he could actually enter. And from there, he called on relatives who had blue IDs, because as I say, in this community, it's members of the same family who have these different colored permits. And... um he asked a member of his family with a blue ID to go search at the Jerusalem hospitals for his son. And he spends the next 36 hours of his life trying just to locate his son and find out what happened to him. Just incredible. And, and you write so beautifully about how this occupation, how this bureaucracy controls people's entire lives. And, and I just want to also point out this particular accident happened. They were only on a field trip in terrible weather because there was no playground accessible to them near where they lived. Isn't that right? They had to take a very circuitous route just to go to a play area because of the same conditions. 
That's exactly right. You know, inside this area, this walled enclave of Anatta and Shuafat camp, it's today roughly 130,000 people who live inside of it. And um, the contrasts are so stark because when you're inside this enclave, you turn your head and you look up and you see the manicured grounds of Israel's most prestigious university, the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Yeah. You turn in the other direction and you look through the slits of two, you know, unpainted gray concrete uh, buildings in the Shuafat refugee camp, and you are looking right on beautiful green playgrounds that are uh, inaccessible to half of the people in the enclave. You're looking at very expensive red roofed single family homes, uh, just you know, right there, a stone's throw away. But within the enclave, you do not have paved roads. You do not have sidewalks. You do not have lanes in the roads. Municipal services are almost non-existent. People are forced to burn trash in the middle of the street. The main thoroughfare that runs from one end of this enclave to the other end of this enclave, the main road for 130,000 people is so narrow that when I drive and visit Abed there, I can barely squeeze by a bus moving in the opposite direction. And I need to roll down my window, pull in my side mirror and slowly inch my way around a bus millimeter by millimeter. And of course, this causes enormous traffic and huge weights for everybody who's just moving in and out of this of this enclave. That's how 130,000 people are living day in and day out. And they know they're not going to get a wider road. That's right. They know it's only going to get worse. It's only going to get more dense uh, because they understand the basic logic of the system is that they are Palestinian and therefore neglected. And people around them, the communities around them that are uh, Jewish are going to, of course, get regular transportation and trash pickup and all the rest. Um, and and so a big part of my motive for writing the book was to show this insane reality that yep. everyone around me takes for granted, uh, but is yep. uh, bonkers to anyone who comes and sees it for the first time. No, you did it, and, and you nailed it. I mean, it's a book about the system itself, the same system that took this child's life, the same system that led to the atrocity of October 7th. And it's incredible because, you know, this 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 accident is not counted as a death caused by the occupation in any official statistics. But as you point out, it was the conditions of the community. It was the conditions of the occupation that directly set up this accident and the deaths of these children. You spoke with lots of Israeli folks in, in making this book, and it, it seems that a lot of them really do get it. And a lot of them really understand that this system does not make life safer for Israeli people. Yes, there are a lot of Israelis who get it, but it's all. it also should be said that they they can reveal that they get it when they're pressed on it. But their lives are set up in such a way that it's very, very easy to ignore. Uh, as I say, I live right next to this walled ghetto, and I hardly paid it any mind um, as I passed it almost every day. And that's the case, you know, that's e even 10 times truer for most Israelis. The, the entire uh, longevity 
of this system of control depends on Israelis uh, being um, insulated from it. And part of what we're seeing today, the utter shock of the attack of October 7th, was a group of people breaking out of a, another walled ghetto, the walled ghetto of Gaza, and committing the most horrific atrocities. And, and Israelis just never imagined that they, in their homes outside of these walled ghettos, would confront something of, of this scale. And, yeah. and I think the entire society is reeling from, from the, the shock of, of that uh, attack. I think you're exactly right. I mean, you've described what's been going on as a, a post 9-11 moment. I would agree with you. I, I, I hope at some point you get to write about the experience of this book tour, because it certainly seems like from where I'm sitting in the West, that there are more Israelis who are capable of having this conversation and about the failures of the Netanyahu regime, the Netanyahu regime propping up Hamas for so many years to consolidate their own yeah. power. And it seems like our brothers and sisters in Israel are much more ready to have this conversation than a lot of people here in the West. Your book tour has been sadly curtailed in many ways because it seems that there is a lot of entities that are terrified to touch anything that might view the Palestinian people as people at this particular time. That's absolutely right. And, you know, it's long been the case that the conversation in Israel has been much more open. There is great repression in Israel right now, too. It needs to be said. Uh, there are uh, protests just to call for a ceasefire that are by Palestinian citizens of Israel that are being shut down. Uh, there are journalists who are being attacked. There is even a high school teacher who was arrested for, for a Jewish high school teacher who was arrested for uh, posts on social media, expressing sympathy for uh, yeah. Palestinians who have been killed. So uh, there is a climate of repression in Israel right now, but it's still the case that the conversation is much more open in Israel. It was before October 7th, it is after, uh, than it is in the West. And everyone in the West is afraid of saying certain things, of being accused, you know, of you cr criticize Israel too harshly, you're accused of anti-Semitism. Now, yeah. I am inoculated from that because I am a Jew. They still make the accusation, but they know it, it doesn't sound very credible when they make it against me. And, you know, there has been a years-long effort to attempt to define criticism of Israel as anti-Semitism. And yes, they've sir. even promoted a, uh, a definition the known as the IHRA definition yep. of anti-Semitism, uh, which they've uh, international got... Holocaust, international Holocaust Remembrance Alliance? That's right. That's okay, right. Thank you. And this definition, you know, it includes many examples of things that they say are criticisms of Israel ostensibly that are in fact anti-Semitic. And one of them is to, is to say that the state of Israel is racist. Now, you know, a state that has been imposing for more than half a century a system of ethnic domination over another group is plainly behaving in a racist manner. There is no denying that these policies are racist. Race, of course, not in this narrow definition of the 19th century of, you know, four different uh, types of human beings, but uh, race in the broader sense used in international law to include, um, you know, group level 
um, discrimination based on yeah. ethnicity, or religion, or other other kinds of categories. And so, you know, one is not allowed to even say the most obvious thing about this system, which is that it's racist, uh, without being accused of anti-Semitism according to this IHRA definition, mm -hmm. which again, there's been years of groundwork to to limit to limit the criticism of Israel through this uh, this means, this this uh, you know, most people who encounter this IHRA definition, they're not anti-Semites. They don't want to be accused of anti-Semitism. Some yeah. credible group that has the word Holocaust in the title, you know, of course, I, I'll happily adopt any, you know, definition you bring to me. I, I definitely don't want there to be anti-Semitism in the world. And they're not reading it carefully and understanding that this is a, this is a set of examples. This is a set of definitions created specifically in order to speak truthfully about what's happening in yes, Israel-Palestine. I mean, it's 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 crazy to me. It seems like it should be so easy to say criticizing the, the civilian government of Netanyahu is not the same as criticizing Israelis or Jews, just like criticizing the terrorist Nazi thugs of Hamas is not criticizing Palestinian people or Muslims. And yet, right. when, when you've got the the director of the Mossad, who Netanyahu appointed, and he's saying that Israel is practicing apartheid. That's an acceptable debate with our Israeli exactly. friends. And yet here, you know, you can't even go on a real tour of the book because people are so terrified of open dialogue right now. That's right. And and this is a, what you raise is a perfect example of the double standard of this definition. Nobody dares to apply it to all the Israeli generals and security officials who do describe the system as racist, who do say that Israel is practicing apartheid. And as you say, just last August, you know, a few months ago, the Netanyahu director of the Mossad said it, and he's following in the footsteps of the former attorney general of Israel, yeah. the highest legal authority in Israel, saying that Israel's practicing apartheid, former ministers. And yet in the United States, everyone is walking on eggshells. And yeah, uh, that really needs to change if we're going to find a way out of this terrible mess and find a way out of U.S. support for a system of ethnic domination that any American, when is confronted with it, when shown it with their own eyes, and that's what this book really aims to do, is to show them what it looks like. It says, you know, this is this is against everything I stand for as an American. So let me close by saying, how do you feel as an American um, who, who lives in, in the region? When you see Joe Biden fly over to tell Netanyahu, we've got your back and, and we've seen uh, a lot of bipartisan consensus um, in standing by Israel without actually talking about what those words mean and whether one can stand by an ally while necessarily signing off on all that ally's policies. How do you feel when you see folks on the American left calling the president complicit in genocide? I feel terrible shame at the policy of the United States in supporting uh, the system and in supporting the collective punishment of millions of uh, Palestinians now in Gaza who had absolutely nothing to do with the horrific attack of October 7th. Nothing yeah. to do with it. And yeah. yet the U.S. is standing by Israel as it is starving these people of food, water, electricity. 
you know, how is that conceivable? How is that conceivable that the United States can stand by as the president of Israel says that there are no innocents in Gaza, that the whole Palestinian population that had nothing to do with this attack deserves to be punished, that God, all these senior Israeli officials saying, you know, Gaza needs to be flattened, talking about a second Nakba, the forced, you know, expulsion yep. and flight of 750,000 Palestinians in 1948, they're saying we're doing it again. And Ron DeSantis, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's it's uh, incredibly uh, dispiriting. Unfortunately, not surprising that the United States is taking this position. And again, it's it's really obvious now in the middle of this bombing campaign of over 11,000 killed now in Gaza. More than 74 percent of them women, children, and the elderly the, of the 11,000 killed. And, and, you know, it's obvious now when you see that and seeing America stand by it and, and support it and supply weapons to actually, you know, those are American bombs killing those people. Yeah. Uh, so so it's, it's really plain now to see that there's something wrong with American policy. But prior to October 7th, the U.S. was standing by in the slow motion ethnic cleansing of the West Bank in, you know, just between the beginning of 2022 and September of this year. In that period, over a thousand Palestinians in the West Bank were forcibly displaced, mostly right. by settler militias, as well as the army. And, you know, it's it, the, the U.S. didn't lift a finger against this. It's giving actually a huge amount of financial military diplomatic resources and backing to israel as it's doing this and you know america is 100 percent complicit in these policies i don't see how it makes israeli lives any safer and i don't see any military resolution to this ongoing destructive conflict nathan thrall i've been so looking forward to this conversation the book again is a day in the life of abed salama the anatomy of a jerusalem tragedy you have taken the personal and made it political in a way that most writers can only dream of i hope that your book tour uh has a very very long life because you've written uh, a book about this situation like nothing else that's out there right now really an honor to have you sir thank you so much thank you thank you such a pleasure and we'll be right back. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hey 
everybody, it's Michael Steele, host of the Michael Steele Podcast. Each week, I discuss key political and cultural issues joined by America's leading activists, experts, and academics for conversations that transcend political boundaries. And that's the point. I want you to join me as we work through real solutions, have honest conversations, just keeping it real, and having a little fun on the side. So listen to the Michael Steele Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Spreaker, or wherever you get your podcasts on. Because you know I love it when you do. Let me go back to the phones, if I may. Jay in Washington, D.C., thank you for waiting on hold. You're on SiriusXM. Hey, thank you. Uh, love your show. Thank you, sir. So I just wanted to say that, um, well, first, I'm 50 years old. I'm a mixed-race uh, brown person. Okay. And I got, got to say, Biden is in serious trouble right now, you know, and it's not his age, which is, you know, we're an ageist country. It is what it is. But I really think there's this Achilles heel danger with the situation in Israel dragging him down. And, okay. and, and let me tell you, let me tell you why. Okay. Like er, earlier on your show, you were talking about, you know, Charlie Kirk and yeah. his flirt, flirting with anti-Semitism, right? Oh yeah. With, you know, Jewish money and stuff. Like if you're like, for you know, Charlie Kirk has never met a Brown country. He didn't want to bomb. Correct. Right. Like Correct. bomb. Correct. Bomb. Yes. Right. Oh yes. And so like I'm 50, I love Joe Biden and I will, I'm absolutely going to vote for him. And tell everyone to vote for him. But I'm telling you, like, let's say 30 and under people of color, they are looking at this as at the end of the day, you can blow up as many brown babies as you want. I get it. Because, because like, you know, 1,300 Jewish people died, which was awful, absolutely awful. And everyone understands it. But I don't think that the general, like, liberal media is, you know, that they, they... They'll mention this, but they're not getting what it feels like for these folks. Like, I grew up with the knee-jerk, you know, oh, we have to support Israel and everything with a few, like, qualified, oh, but they need to be humanitarian, like, no matter what they're actually doing. Now, like, that hospital, like, you know, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene has more guns in her office than they showed in that picture right. from that hospital they bombed. And I really think we, you know, this is coming at us where we're going to get a year from now. I'm with you. And all, the, all these people, all these young people who should just vote for Joe Biden, and you can logically make the case as to why I love the guy, I'm going to vote for him. They're going to sit at home. I'm really Joe, worried about Jay, that. Jay, we're going to see a year from now, whatever we're talking about right now is not going to be what anybody's talking about a year from now. You know that, right? I mean, this is all going to be ancient history. By the time the primaries are done, Donald Trump has seven criminal trials. And look, let's just say a year from now, the the, the race is between the old Democrat who fought for a ceasefire, who got $100 million in humanitarian aid into Gaza. Or the old Republican who wants to ban Muslims from entering the country. I think it's going to be a simple call for people of conscience a year from now. I I hear you, man. And I feel the same way. But my worry is people like under 30, let's say, let's say a year from now, 10,000 more kids have died in Gaza by American-made bombs. Yeah. I really worry that this, like, 
pillar of Joe Biden's strength being young people, especially, you know, just generally young people. I really am afraid that they're going to sit at home and not vote and that Biden has to forcefully push back on what Israel is doing, like forcefully. And I I don't know. Maybe I'm I'm afraid of the same thing. I'm afraid of the same thing. But again, a lot's going to happen between now and then. And honestly, I, I, I have a bit more faith in young voters who give a shit that they will show up. And vote for someone they don't agree with 100% to keep a fascist from getting back in office. Rhonda, what do you think? Oh, John, I had a question for your your caller. Um, I I appreciate his enthusiasm. When he when you say you're mixed race, uh, what races are you mixed with? Uh, I'm white and I'm South Asian, but I'm definitely brown skinned. So, like, you know, I don't I don't pass as white if that's what you're asking. Right. No, I'm just asking what the mix is so I can do some math. That's all. Do some math. What do you want about? What do you mean? No, I just want to, I just want to know because when people say they're mixed race, it could be any combination true. Okay. of things. Very and, true. And, and that helps me uh, just understand a little bit more about, about his background. I was just going to say, like, I'm, I look like someone Charlie Kirk would drop a bomb on. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, we got a long way to go, man. And uh, I don't believe any of the polls right now. A lot is going to change. And the issues that we're fighting each other about now at Thanksgiving time of 2023 are going to be long forgotten by the time the presidential uh, conventions roll around next summer. Let's see where it goes, man. I'm not able to. I don't even I know if you're right, my man. there's still a very good chance Nikki Haley will be the nominee. and It'll be completely bizarre. So let's see what right. happens, man. But thank you for calling. Rhonda, can you stay with us till after the break? We're going to go away and do some ads and then come right back and uh, take some more calls. All right. We're at 866-997-4748. Miss Hanson is staying here, won't you? Don't forget, in the next hour, former senator of Alabama and civil rights hero, Doug Jones, joins us. We're at 866-997-GRIT. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. I'm John Fugel saying this is Sirius XM Progress. Miss Rhonda Hanson, how do our listeners listeners follow follow you and keep up with all your your doings and all your many comedy performances? Uh, well, you can actually catch me directing on Sunday the 26th online. Uh, I, 
a presentation by the Frank Silvera Writers Workshop. I'll be putting that link on Twitter at Rhonda Handsome, like a handsome man without the D. You don't need the D, baby. Let's try to get a couple of callers in really quick before the break. Mitch in Ohio, welcome. You're on progress. Thank you, John. Hey, Rhonda. Hi, Mitch. How are you doing? John, uh, real quick, if I may, a shout out to Bill in Pennsylvania. I ain't heard him for so long. I just hope he's doing well. Yeah, we haven't heard from Bill in Pennsylvania in a while, and I miss him. You're right. Yeah, yeah. Well, good man, and I just hope, I just want to shout out and hope he's doing well. Me too. Uh, Thank you. John, uh, uh, Adam Kissinger had a great uh, line about Trump. He is a professional victim. And that just, yep. <laughs> how, much, how much truer can it be? You but the other thing was, John, uh, uh, Senator or uh, Representative uh, Pascrell from New Jersey, yes. he put out a uh, post about Trump's plans for a military dictatorship. Yes. And I can't believe the pushback he's getting from this, from his own constituents. It's unbelievable. I, I, don't, I don't know the area of Paz New Jersey, but uh, these people are saying, well, you know, they're pushing back. What the man is saying is the absolute truth. This, this is in his Trump's plans. I mean, that, that's, yeah. that's exactly what he wants to do next. You know, is you know, hell with the guardrails. You know, it's 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 all, all you know. It's hell. It's going to be no, you're right. hell if he's in. You're he's, right. But again, I, I I don't think Donald Trump is going to be more popular in 2024 than he was at uh, January 6th of 2021. But we'll see, Mitch. I thank you so much for the call. Let me try to get Stephen in Kentucky before we're out of here. Stephen, welcome. You're on Progress with Rhonda. Hello. Uh, yes. How are you all this evening? I wanted to let you know I had a few words with Mr. Johnson for his remarks the other day about uh, the depravity of our country, mm. you know, him talking about... The you, are you talking about Donald God. Trump's little Johnson, the Speaker of the House? Oh, yes. Okay. As a matter of fact, I did, and I told him to go fuck himself. Good for you. I said, <laughs> I said if you want to talk about depravity, I said, why don't you look in the mirror? I said, I, at least we don't have to sit there and have somebody more, monitor our porn intake. I said, why would you have your son, uh, some kid that's 16 years old, uh, doing something of that nature for you? Yeah. That, that reeks of creepiness. He really only creepy. knows how to play to a certain kind of room, doesn't he? That was a great one. Oh, yeah, it does. And it's it's disgusting, it is. You know, it, it, whether you agree with watching porn or not, I mean, the fact that he wants to, that's the only thing on his small mind, worried about what's going on in this person's <laughs> bedroom or that person. And I told him, I said, maybe you and your wife should do something on your own. Maybe you have some activity going on in no, your own. No, but you know what? And the software he uses, Rhonda, that the speaker uses for him and his son to monitor each other's porn consumption is the same software that, what's his face, Joe Bob Duggar, whatever his name was, the Duggar who was the... the the pederast is in jail now. He had the same software so his wife could monitor his child porn. And of course, he figured out how to get around it right away. Well, see, they need it. They need a They need a carousel. And he was, love, I guess. Oh, oh, oh. They need. Go ahead, Rhonda. He was doing a lot more than just watching porn. And that's what makes me sick with these holier than thou people same. who put up this facade. And you that's find right. They're 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 horrible. That's right. They are sexless men with dirty minds. And if they just are honest about it, I mean, hell, that's what I mean. Most, I mean, what's the what's the problem with it? I mean, the fact is, and just like, didn't he uh, 
crusade against a, a, a gentleman's club at one time. Is yes, he's against TZ. He's against any in any any time that people might be having fun. Uh, he's he's against it, the pleasure of others uh, if it's pleasure that he doesn't sign off on. Yes, a lot of things that Jesus never talked about. You know, Jesus never came out against gay people. Never came out against premarital sex. Jesus never came out against any kind of kink or strippers. Jesus didn't like hypocrisy and adultery. And this guy goes to bat for Donald Trump. Well, and I also wanted to change the subject before I go too about Rosalind Carter. Please. Mrs. Carter, a lot of people don't talk about this, and it's unfortunate that, you know, she she was ahead of her time. And she didn't, uh, the press at the time, again, we don't talk about this now, but I remember, um, you know, Gloria Steinem said once that she was, there was no independent thought with her husband. You know, they were like Tweedledum and Tweedledee, and this mm-hmm. was back in 1977 when Gloria said this. Mm-hmm. And the sad part about it is that um, because Mrs. Carter was old school, and she was uh, not only a homemaker, wife, mother, hostess, she was also an activist, a businesswoman, all those different roles. Right. And because she was a, a traditionalist, they automatically assumed she was anti-ERA. Exactly right. And she was the exact opposite. She was a true feminist and a true crusader. Stephen, I'm so sorry, but we're out of time. Thank you so much no, for calling. All right. I can call back tomorrow. And we'll call back tomorrow. We'll, we'll have some laughs. Miss Rhonda Handsome, you are so beautiful. Tell us one more time how we can follow you. On Facebook, Rhonda Handsome Comedy. Rhonda Full on Instagram. And on Twitter at Rhonda Handsome, like a handsome man without the D. You don't need the D, darling. And we'll be right back with former Alabama Senator, the great Doug Jones. This is Sirius XM Progress. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Ready to elevate your home? Picture this. Central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis. Go green with solar panels or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's Home Equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Hey all, Glenn Kirshner here. Friends, I hope you'll join me on my audio podcast, Justice Matters. We talk about not only the legal issues of the day, but we also talk about the need to reform ethics in our government. Here's one example, the oath of office. You know the one. I do solemnly swear to support and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Let's add 22 words to that oath. Quote, and I will promptly report any instances of crime and or corruption by government officials and employees of which I become aware. Friends, our democracy is worth fighting for. Join us in this fight, because justice matters. Look for Justice Matters wherever you ordinarily find your podcasts. Welcome back. This is SiriusXM Progress. I'm John Fugelsang. Let's talk for a bit about no labels. 
you probably have some idea that they're actually a dark money spoiler party with secret right-wing donors, and they exist pretty much to get right-wing candidates elected by siphoning votes away. Their main premise is that Donald Trump and Joe Biden are both on opposite extreme ends of a political spectrum, and they're here to bring balance. Except the two are not equally extreme. Donald Trump has 91 criminal charges in four jurisdictions. He's twice impeached, both times for cheating to win the 2020 election in different ways. He ended America's 220-year peaceful transfer of power found by a jury to have committed sexual assault, and he wants to root out Americans he calls vermin. Joe Biden thinks women should have control of their own bodies. Not equally extreme. The so-called No Labels Party is not a movement to mobilize the middle. They're a dark money front group for Donald Trump, and no one knows that better than our next guest. Uh, There are very few people who've served in the Senate I'll call heroes. But I will say the former U.S. Senator from Alabama, who served as U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of Alabama under President Clinton, who successfully prosecuted the two former Klan members for the 1963 Birmingham church bombing that killed four African-American girls, he's earned it. And the downgrade an Alabama senator from Doug Jones to a former football coach who can't name the three branches of government is one of the greatest tragedies in modern American politics. What a pleasure to welcome back Senator Doug Jones. John, thanks for having me. And I really do appreciate those very kind words. I'm a little humbled when people say things like that, but I do always appreciate it very much. It's great to be with you. I appreciate how much you and certain Alabama voters in 2017 restored my faith in the American experiment, sir. So it's very (laughs) mutual. Before we begin, I know you just recently last month had your first trip to the African continent. Uh, Welcome back. How how was the trip? It it looked like It, it was amazing. It it truly was remarkable. Uh, We're working with a client who's a a conservancy client. Uh, We're working in Kenya. We've met with the ambassador, um, Meg Whitman. Our client, Wild Landscapes, is just an incredible kind of smaller conservancy that is now doing some great work with the conservancies over in Kenya, both private conservancies as well as the community conservancies and the Kenya Wildlife Service to establish some corridors for rhinoceros to go back and forth and move, which helps all wildlife over there, plus security because of the poaching issues. They gotta have incredible security and it helps that. So it helps the communities build up. And it, it was really just an absolutely amazing trip. And I, I couldn't let the moment pass, John, without saying at one point, we went to one of the conservancies and came and, and met with two northern white rhinos and they are they are the last two white rhinos northern white rhinos on the planet the last two of that subspecies and that's a humbling experience Uh, and they're doing some great work to try to get them there were some some boys around them years ago and they've been able to through modern technology preserve some of them so that they can try to have some baby rhinos in the next couple of years but it really is trouble. It is really amazing. It really gives you a humbling experience to see two living things that you know are the last ones on the entire planet. Um, sir, every American and every human who is disgusted by watching people kill endangered species for recreation, thanks you for your yeah. service. Oh, um, it's it's it's, a, it's an honor. Well, I I appreciate your work there. Uh, I want to talk to you a bit about what's going on here in the States, of course. Um, We last week found out that after a year of coaxing by Mitch McConnell, Senator Manchin will not be seeking re-election in the state of West Virginia. 
it's generally seeded now that that will go to a Republican. We already know that the fate of the uh, Democratic balance in the Senate is is in jeopardy. But it seems that one of the ways Manchin really groomed um, was really groomed by McConnell to leave the Senate was to push this no labels business, this illusion that there is somehow this alternative to the far extremes of the two mainstream parties that Americans are crying out for. Yeah. You know, what? what's ironic about that, John, is that while I think that there were people like McConnell whispering in Joe's ear, Manchin's ear, a little bit about the no labels, his head of the senatorial campaign committee, Steve Daines from Montana, was telling Donald Trump that he should endorse Jim Justice, the governor of West Virginia, because if they can get Manchin out of the Senate race, he may run for governor, I mean, for president, and that would siphon off votes away from Biden and help Trump. That was in a political article recently. And yeah. finally, Haynes was kind of saying out loud what we've all known. The no labels effort is a fool's errand. There is no way on God's green earth that a third party candidate or in uh, 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 independent candidacy can win 270 electoral votes. And if you understand that and you see the dynamics, you'll see that this is one a money-making uh, exercise. I noticed another article the other day where all of the executives of No Labels have had their salaries like tripled or quadrupled Correct. in the year with the money they're bringing in. And it's an effort. It's truly an effort. Their, their pollster, Mark Penn, has done work for Donald Trump consistently right. over the years. Uh, and, and clearly they are trying to bring people that are middle of the road, moderate type voters away from Biden and over uh, leaving that gap. And that is going to literally has the danger of putting Donald Trump uh, back in the White House. It's the only way that they can have an effect on the, the, the process is by being a spoiler. The only way. We have to remind ourselves that despite Mitch McConnell's well-documented distaste for Donald Trump, he would much prefer to end his career in the Senate approving Trump judges than Biden judges. This is twofold. It's both to help the GOP take back the Senate, and it's very feasible that Manchin had no chance of retaining that seat anyway. But you're right, sir. I mean, it really is an orchestrated effort by the Republicans to try to coax Joe Manchin to run for this folly ticket appealing to his vanity and not much else just to siphon votes away from the Biden administration. And that's right. And, and the fact is, John, there is only one party that is big enough uh, to allow moderate voices in it, and that is the Democratic Party right now. We, we have progressive vo uh, voices. We have moderate voices. We have moderate left voices. But at the end of the day, we have been able to prove with Joe Biden as president who, by the way, under another circumstances, would be the ideal candidate for no labels, okay? Because yeah. he does bring people together. He does govern. And that's the real key. Democrats have actually learned to govern with Joe Biden as president. Yeah. We've been able to bring folks together and govern. And, and, and the, the things that he's done with the jobs, with the economy, with holding our allies together, fighting off Putin uh, in Ukraine, uh, doing all he can to keep the Israeli conflict right now from going and becoming a regional conflict or beyond that is pretty remarkable. And it's a tough road and it's not an easy uh, thing to do. But clearly, I'm hoping when my friend Joe Manchin goes out on his listening tour, that folks will go talk to him about this 
and let him know that his place is trying to help help those moderate voices within the party to make sure that we can govern and to not take votes away. The one thing I do know, John, is that Joe Manchin, and he said it very clearly, the last thing he wants to do is see Donald Trump as president. I do believe that. I know that in his heart. And so I'm hoping that he can get this third party stuff out of his system uh, and we can all get back together, making sure that we go forward for 2024. Amen, Senator. Uh, you know, I, I hope you're right. I'm not opposed to third parties in theory. I've always said our greatest president sure. was a, a Republican, a third party, Lincoln, 38 percent of the vote way back then. So uh, in theory, I'm not against it. But you were on uh, ABC's This Week over the summer debating Senator Lieberman. And I thought you really nailed it when you said, I don't know why in the world someone thinks that Joe Biden's administration is so far left unlike a Donald Trump or someone else that is extreme right. You've pointed out all the things this president has done, bringing the infrastructure package together, the PACT Act for the veterans, the CHIPS Act for manufacturing. I mean, we can get hearing aids over the counter now. The big three drug industries are sitting down to negotiate drug prices with Medicare. You're right. Within the Democratic Party, you have the squad and you have anti-abortion conservative Democrats in Texas. You have a full political spectrum within the Democratic Party. Whenever I hear someone calling Joe Biden a leftist, I say, have you have you talked to any leftists about this? <laughs> I know plenty <laughs> of leftists and they're they're not fans, really. That's right. And, and, and you know, there's something that that hit the news in the last week or so that I also think is important for uh, the president and for people to understand. He is he is that working men and women president. He was there on a picket line for the UAW, the first president ever to do that, to try to bring those wages back up, to try to do those things. And guess what? They were successful. They were have been able to try to get all of this going. And what happened? Toyota and I think Honda, maybe, announced that they were going to kind of match those raises for their workers. You know, that's the kind of thing that when you do something for people, it lifts all boats. Yeah. And that's the, that's the real key. And that's been his heart. I've known him for 40 years. That's has been, been his heart. That's who he is. And he is going to stay this course. And by the way, for to, if, if this is going to be, uh, you know, today is his birthday. So a shout out right. to my old friend Joe Biden is the happy 81st birthday. Yes, sir. He's still younger than Harrison Ford and Martin Scorsese and uh, <laughs> just a little older than Mick Jagger. And any of those people would be fine presidents by me. That's I, right. Do you think um, it would be good to see the president show up on more picket lines, Senator Jones? Well, you know, look, there's the one interesting thing about this. Now, we're seeing more and more picket lines. We're seeing, uh, I think, this president has empowered uh, the labor movement. Uh, he is a labor president. He's empowered uh, the labor movement. I think that the, when he showed up in one of the largest, most uh, the thing that affects people so much uh, with the UAW and and uh, automobiles and parks and those kind of things, that sent a strong message. Whether or not he can show up for another one remains to be seen. After all, he is the president of the United States and not just of the AFL-CIO. So I think picking and choosing, if he has the time, he would love to. Um, but he's going to have a pretty busy schedule in 2024. So we'll see how it goes. But I know his heart's going to be there. Uh, Senator Jones, these these polls are rubbish, aren't they? I've been talking people off ledges for a couple of weeks, reminding them these are folks who are answering their landline phones and people who are answering their cell phones when they don't know who the caller is. It's a year out. 
And, you know, maybe journalists care about democracy, but the, the media cares about ratings and creating a horse right. race. Are you worried about the president's reelection chances? No, I, I, I'm really not. Only except with the, the caveat about no labels, the caveat about independent candidates that seem to be popping up, um, you, you know, and, and, and a member of Congress who has the, also a fool's errand to try to run against Joe Biden in the Democratic primary. Those have real issues that we need to address in the campaign. I think going forward is going to have to address that. I think Democrats and, and uh, are going to have to really organize. We have fought off voter suppression for uh, uh, in the last couple of elections. Now we're going to have to 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 get mobilized to bring Democrats to the fold. I'm really not. I think pollsters are now trying to 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 just kind of you know look. It's a year out, so they got to have some business exactly. right now. So they're 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 going out there and trying to get raise money to do more polling and more polling. But it is a snapshot of that is not even a. A, a, a reality for tomorrow. And people are not focused on the election at all one year out. They're just not right. focused on it. And I, I do think that people are having an emotional reaction sometime. You know, look, John, the president's age is a, is a legitimate issue. Uh, people have experiences and, the, and it's a legitimate issue. But I think as they focus in on the job that this president has done, what he's continuing to do, what he wants to do, and the contrast between him and someone who literally seems to want to destroy democracy, I have no doubt in my mind that Joe Biden will end up being reelected. He has got everything it takes to do that. Senator, as I often say, I think Americans will rather go for the, uh, the old man who needs another nap over the old man who needs another defense attorney. <laughs> Your experience, I'm sure in the Senate, you've encountered many Republican colleagues who would privately acknowledge the mendacity and corruption of these reality show performers like Trump or like Tuberville. You have been replaced in our Senate by this white supremacist defender who didn't know what the Voting Rights Act was. He takes credit for infrastructure bills he votes against, and he couldn't name the three branches of government. I'm not making that up. Neither could Trump. Uh, He's now continuing this anti-American assault on our military readiness, as you well know, and doing it by claiming that he's doing this to stop women from having abortions after they've already given birth. It's just crossed over into bizarre at this point, Senator. And I'm sure you've got a lot of former Republican colleagues who've had it with Tommy Tuberville's self-serving theatrics. I don't think there's any question about it. I think you saw that in full display on the U.S. Senate floor about um, a week or so ago, maybe a couple of weeks now, and I think it's continued then. Uh, it, you know, not only are have they had it, they're also, you know that they've had it when they start pointing out his contradictory statements, his inconsistencies, and questioning not only his credibility, but his honesty about all of this. They gave him an offering to start the process of doing this. He had said all along, bring them up one at a time. But what he's not now saying, he continues to move the goalpost constantly to use a metaphor that only he can understand. I say only that he certainly can understand. He moves the goalpost and changes the rules because once they brought him up one at a time and asked for unanimous consent for people that deserve unanimous consent, he objected. He continued to object. He had Mike Lee come uh, given the tag team last weekend uh, to do the same thing. I'm hoping, John, that the Rules Committee uh, change, this one-time change in the rules will pass. They've got to get nine Republicans to go along with it. 
They got to get nine. And I know that there is a reluctance. Unfortunately, there is a always a reluctance among U.S. senators to change any rule. And once yep. they get there, they seem to just get mired in concrete about the rules because they think somehow it will work against them sometime, somehow, some way in the future. But I'm hoping that we can get nine Republicans to join the Democrats and make this one time change and get these now over 400 of these military officers promoted so that our military can get back to the readiness and their families can get settled in time for the holidays. Well, Senator, this month is the 46 year anniversary of the first ever conviction of one of those Klansmen in the bombing uh, at the at the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama. It took over two decades for you to bring the other ones to justice. I just want to thank you again for joining us. You always manage, unlike most politicians, to fill people's hearts with hope while never, ever compromising your intelligence. And I, I hope your family has a wonderful Thanksgiving. It's always a great pleasure to have you with us. John, thanks. Uh, thanks for that very much. And thanks for reminding me that it was 46 years ago and reminding me how old I'm getting, because I sat as a law student, as you probably know, I sat as a law student in that first trial, watching it from the balcony, uh, never dreaming that I could do it again uh, and, and finish the job uh, 24 years later. So thanks for remembering that. Thanks for bringing it up. Have a wonderful holiday. Thank you, sir. Have a great one. This is progress. 